Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to discuss two, two different ideas today, uh, two kind of mini discourses, if you will. Um, one is about, uh, one is about um, how the descent is for the purpose of the ascent, meaning that when a person gets lower in, in terms of their own spirituality, that, that, that the reason for that is just so that they should only go higher. And we're going to discuss different aspects of that. And then afterwards, uh, with God's help, we're going to discuss um, uh, a, deep, a deeper understanding of, of the man, the, 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 the mana in English, the, the bread that fell from heaven. And we'll get two kind of, uh, two kind of hopefully uh, interesting perspectives. So let's discuss um, this idea that the, that the descent is for the purpose of the ascent. Um, and... Uh, I want to discuss a, a medrash that you're probably all familiar with, but discuss it in a way that that that, that I hope will be new. So, so it's 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 known that uh, Sarah, um, the our, our our great holy mother, um, the first Jewish woman, she she was married to Abraham, of course, and her name originally in the Torah is Sarai, and that's um, and she can't have kids. And then Hashem changes her name to Sarah, and then she has kids. So it's a miraculous thing. So, so the, the Yud, the letter Yud at the end of Sarai, gets taken away and changed into a Hey. Right? So, so the Medrash says that the Yud complained to God and said, what, what about me? You know, like, what, what happens to me? And so Hashem then says, don't worry, don't worry. And Moshe's great student and successor originally is named Hoshaya. And he's going on this very dangerous mission. He's going to go and be one of the 12 spies. Um, and Moshe wants to give him a special blessing. So before he goes on this very dangerous mission, Moshe changes his name and makes him Yehoshua. He adds a Yud to the beginning of his name, and of course everyone knows him by Yehoshua. And so the Yud that got taken off the name of Sarai gets attached to Yehoshua, and now everything is good. So now, it works out perfectly. It really works perfectly. So I've known this Medrash for, I don't know, maybe a couple of decades or something like that, and all of a sudden it hit me um, the other day, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what does that actually say? Besides the fact that it works out beautifully, and see, you see, I should just tell you this, that a lot of Torah teachings like this, there's so, there's so much pyrotechnics to it that when you sort of get to the tada moment where the Yud becomes attached to Yehoshua, you know, you're so sort of dazzled by it that you don't actually ask the next question, which is, what was just being said? Like, what was the meaning of that whole thing besides just the sort of like the heavenly sort of accounting that, that was just done? So now let's try to go deeper into this and try and figure out what question is the Medrash actually asking and what answer is it actually giving? So, so the question that's being asked is, what happens to displaced spirituality? Meaning to say the yud gets turned into a hey. It, that's not just a simple, oh, here's one letter and it gets turned into another letter. 
Now it's very resonant that it's that letter and it becomes another letter. So, so let's, let's first start off with the fact, a recognition of the fact, that Yud and He are two letters in Hashem's holiest name. But it's not just that. Remember, we always picture the name of Hashem, the Yud Ke Vav Ke, and, and as I always like to say, you have to picture it from the top going down, because it's not just the name of Hashem, but it also functions as a map of, the, of, the, of, of all the worlds, of, of, of this world and all the spiritual uh, universe. So the Yud is the highest reaches, that's at the top, then underneath that you have the He, then underneath that you have the Vav, and then the bottom He. So everybody knows that the bottom He stands for this, this realm, this dimension that we live in. It's called Malchus, right? That's, that's, that's this dimension. And, and so what you see here is that the top Yud, which was attached to the name of Sarai, now, now with that in mind, Listen to the teaching of the Magalia Mukos, one of our greatest rabbis in Kabbalists. He was the chief rabbi of Krakow in the beginning of the 1600s, the rabbi of the Shach, among others. He was in this world, he was in the next world, he was, he was beyond awesome. So he explains that Sarai, how is it that, that it's very logical actually, that Sarai isn't able to have babies. But Sarah is. Why? Because Sarai, when she has this letter Yud attached to her, which is the heights of spirituality, she's like almost like this angelic creature. Right? She's not really in this world. She is. I mean, let's not misunderstand what the Torah is saying. She's born of mother and father. She's a human being. She's flesh and blood. You know, she lives and then she passes on. So she's 100% a human. Nonetheless, she has this exalted spirituality to her. Now, the rabbis teach, it's not that she just had fertility problems. She didn't have a womb. You know, so she was like beyond. She was like really like, like, like an angelic creature. So when Hashem changes her name from Sarai and takes away this Yud, and what does he do? He puts the letter He there which is the letter which signifies this dimension that we live in, what they call Olamasiya, the world of action. Now, all of a sudden, she's like situated in this realm and she's able to have kids. So this is the explanation of the Magalia Mukas, okay? So now we begin to understand the complaint of the Yud a little bit more. So the Yud is saying, what about me? In other words, there was an exalted level of spirituality that all of a sudden got brought down into this world and seemingly displaced because now Sarah is more of a sort of like meat and potatoes human being type person and this sort of angelic quality doesn't seem to be there anymore. So where, is, where does that spirituality go? Does it disappear? Is it lost? This is the question being asked by the Medrash. Now, you know, I can tell you from my experience and from many people's experiences, and just to make this real and relatable to our own lives, a lot of people when they get married, they feel as though they experience what we call a urethra, a fall in terms of their own spirituality. And, and why is that? 
because a person is sort of accustomed to serving God in their own way, and they have certain sort of like special kind of rhythms that they sort of like um, are in tune with, and that's how they're connecting to God. And then all of a sudden they get married, and then it becomes very disrupted. It becomes a completely different thing. But the reality is, is that a person is becoming more spiritual, but they have to go through a transition period to rediscover the new rhythms that are there. So in other words, it's like you're, you're learning a new song, basically. And so that takes some time. But then once you, first of all, know that that's going to happen in advance, and then allow yourself to have a degree of patience, then all of a sudden you're back and you're doing better even than you were before. Because now you're elevating a whole new construct. And so it's actually even higher. But that, that would be another example of that. But, but let's go further. You see, the idea is like this. Rip Shlomo used to talk about this a lot. And you know, um, if you read about the tzaddikim, the Hasidic masters, they were all into this idea, which is hiding one's level of spirituality. That, you see, Rip Shlomo has a beautiful phrase. He, he talks about having secrets with God. You see, that's very different from having secrets from God, <laughs> which, by the way, doesn't work. <laughs> you can't have any secrets from God, but you can have secrets with God. And that's a very, very beautiful thing. That's the idea that you're doing like certain acts of kindness and chesed and everything like that, and you're not advertising. Like, you know that God knows. And that creates a very special bond between you and God, because this is a secret with God. And so this actually makes things even stronger. Now, I heard that, um, you know, I'll just say something about my, my grandfather, because my, my mom used to talk about this idea, you know, you know, we were, quote, unquote, not a religious family growing up, although, you know, we were very strongly Jewish, but not, not from. Um, and yet, you know, we were brought up in, in such a deep, deeply Jewish way. And, and my mother used to talk about this idea from the time I was a little boy, about doing like mitzvahs like tzedakah, especially anonymously, like doing things in secret. And, um, and she used to talk about her father, who I never had the privilege of meeting, um, Ari ben Abraham. Actually, he's an amazing story. He, he stowed away on a ship from Italy to America when he was 11 years old, him and his 13-year-old cousin, they, they lived in uh, Trieste, Italy, northern Italy, and they taught themselves to read and write, um, you know, in, in uh, you know, the early part of the uh, 20th century, the early 1900s in New York City, and he became a, 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 a grocer, and he had a number of different grocery stores, and especially he had them during the Depression, which was a very good thing to have, you know, food stores during the Depression, the Great Depression. And my mother used to tell me how he used to give away baskets of food to people, and on the bottom of the basket of food, he put cash, so that when the person received the basket, they didn't even know that they were receiving money. You know, that he did it, everything in a very hidden way. And, um, and then I heard, uh, I heard Rabbi Pesach Krohn say something, which is sort of like a PS to this. Um, an addendum, uh, which is, he said that you should try to do this, 
what we're talking about, this idea of, you know, hiding your level, serving God, having secrets with God. But that this doesn't really apply to your children or if you're a teacher to your students. And, and, and he said that he's been to too many, um, we should all live long, but he's been to too many houses of mourning where people come and they tell stories about the parent that passed away and the kids had no idea about that the, that the mother and the father did these amazing acts of chesed, kindness. And he was saying that they, they shouldn't find out in that way. They should find out from the parents. And that way they, they get the idea to do it. And I'll give you an example of this. I was at a bar mitzvah yesterday. And um, the rabbi was giving a speech and he was talking about, you know, the family. And he was talking about the, the father of the bar mitzvah boy. And it's all a long story, but I'll just tell you the bottom line. He said it ended with him, the, the father uh, of the bar mitzvah boy, buying the rabbi a pair of shoes that he needed. And they were an expensive pair of shoes that he himself couldn't afford. And when the man saw that he, he couldn't afford them, he, he, made them, he made them a present. And then he turned to the boy and he said, so when you get older, buy your rabbi a pair of shoes. And I love that because it's sort of like, it never would have occurred to me in a million years to buy my rabbi a pair of shoes. So in other words, there are all these amazing ideas of different ways of serving God that are so surprising. And it will just, not because you have a, not because of any reason other than you never would have, it never would have occurred to you to do it unless you get told that these are ways, these are possibilities. So that's why another level why it's important for a parent to tell his children, you know, yeah, if, if a person's a teacher, to tell his students different, different ideas like this because it's not for their own glorification. It's in order to expand people's minds of different new ways of, of serving God. So, you know, I was relating this idea to a couple of people and I was surprised. Both of them asked the same question. They said, what about your wife and friends? <laughs> like, can you tell them? And I was surprised that they went to that place, that they both went to that place immediately, you know, in separate instances. And so I'll just tell you what my answer was. I said, you know, with your wife or your husband, it depends. Um, because, you see, the whole idea is that you don't, when you're sharing some chesed that you've done, some act of kindness, some some spiritual level that you've attained, or whatever it is. The whole point is that it shouldn't be a, uh, even if it's just a, just a little smidge in it, an act of saying, look at how I'm better than you are. You see, if, that's, if that is even a taste of, of, of what's being related, then it's not worth anything. It's not, it's not worth anything. You know, the, 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 the point is, is that you're broadening minds, not, it's not competing or, or trying to exalt your, yourself. So, so given the nature of the up and down relationship between husband and wife and, and friends with each other, there are moments when the gates are open and there's a, uh, an intimacy that's in the air where you can say it. And it's, 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 it, it goes right through, and it's fantastic. And there are other times where, you know what, it's, it's just not going to come across. Look what I'm doing that you're not doing. So a person has to really, you know, 
It's like the Katska Rebbe says, before you talk, before you impart any information to another person, ask yourself this question, why am I telling them this? Why am I saying this? Am I saying this to make myself into like a big shot? Or am I telling them this because they need this information? Why am I saying what I'm saying? person has to ask themselves this question, especially when they're relating something about their own spiritual relationship with God. Very important. So again, there's this idea of hiding your levels. Now, now let's go a little bit further into this. You see, the Gomorrah in Shabbos says that one of the questions that were asked in heaven is, did you study Torah bi'ito, meaning in its time. So the standard definition of that is, did you have a regular Torah schedule, a Seder in Torah? So ideally, all of us are studying, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just one minute, really. I'm being very serious about that when I say one minute. Even if it's just one minute, everyone should be trying to learn every single day. Even if, like I say, I've recommended a number of times, different collections of Hasidic teachings, which are three lines long, four lines long. And there's so much packed into those phrases that you can read one line of that and think about it, not just all day, but for the rest of your life. So, so really, in one minute, you can, you can have a Torah Seder. You can have like a daily Torah thing. And two books that um, come to mind immediately, if you want to try to have these in your library, are um, Bringing Heaven Down to Earth by Tzvi Friedman. It's a fantastic book, highly recommend it. Another one is called Hasidic Wisdom. That's another great one. And, um, and these are good to have on the shelf because sometimes you need Torah to go, right? So this is like drive-through Torah. You know, you can just like grab a piece of wisdom and be on your way. And the, the light beyond. Uh, yeah, the light beyond is, and that's the Ari Kaplan book. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's original text, it's all original. Yeah, that, that is beyond awesome. That, that's actually, I think, the first uh, Hasidic book I ever bought. That is beyond awesome, beyond awesome. Yeah, The Light Beyond by Rabbi Ari Kaplan is a, is a must. Um, so, so these are examples uh, of that. But I heard, uh, in the name of the Biala Rebbe, another way to understand what Torah Bi'ito means. Which is, remember, Torah Bi'ito means Torah in its time, right? So he says, you know what it means? What we're going to be asked in the next world in front of the heavenly court? Did you say the right Torah at the right time? Did you say, when you interacted with someone, did you say the thing that they needed to hear when they needed to hear it? Or did you take that occasion just to expound on something? <laughs> like, who knows what that they didn't need at that moment? You see? So, do you know, to be able to say Torah bi'ito, the right thing at the right time. That, that's a very special gift. And often what that involves is getting back to the Medrash, which we haven't left yet, the Yud becoming the He. Meaning to say, your mind might be way up there and you might be in the middle of a understanding a Gemara or solving a problem in the Halacha or thinking about something very philosophical and very, very deep. But you're talking to someone who doesn't know Aleph from Bez. 
And so what is it to, to, to be able to come down and to relate to that person, right? And to tell them something that seems to you extremely basic or obvious is for you to, at that moment, lower yourself within your own consciousness. And it might seem like what you could impart, you won't impart, and that therefore this sort of yud level of spirituality, of exalted energy, is, not, is just being dissipated, is not finding its concrete material expression through your speech in this world. So again, the Yud has a complaint to Hashem. What happens to me? What happens to the spirituality that comes down? You know, you know, I know like for me, like a lot of times, like on the job and things like that, I wear a baseball cap, you know? And it's sort of like, why? Because... I need to be relatable. I need to be. Let me give you an example, and really, I'm, I'm not talking about myself here. I'm, I'm really, I really think of Reb Shlomo with this example. And again, just so you know, we're just talking about the Yud becoming a hey. This is all still on the Midrash. It's an amazing uh, parable, amazing mushroom. And uh, I heard this from a Chabad rabbi. He said that a king has to send a message in a time of war. And he has to send the messenger through a battlefield. And if he's, he has to take someone who he trusts very much. So he takes one of his royal ministers. Now, if the royal minister goes through the battlefield dressed in all of his royal robes, he's either going to be killed or captured. And he's not going to get his message there. But... If the royal messenger disguises himself and, you know, whatever he's dressed in, but he's not dressed in his normal royal robes, then he gets through. The message gets through. And he's actually able to communicate it. And I really believe that Reb Shlomo was an awesome example of this. Reb Shlomo, in terms of the amount of Torah knowledge that he had, was like, you know, like the sun. I mean, he... he he knew more than virtually anybody else in the entire world. And yet, he conducted himself like, you know, one of like the Holy Brothers, right? And spoke in this sort of like quasi, you know, hippie lingo, you know? Why? Why? So that so that he could be a relatable person and could communicate these awesome teachings to people who knew absolutely nothing and to fill them with absolute rocket fuel. I mean, what he was able to, through his genius in teaching, the, the levels that he was able to distill and put into normal language were beyond, absolutely beyond. Remember, you really have to Picture in your mind, just like a map of the world. Now, one side, picture Poland before World War II and like the mountains and the greatness and the libraries of Hasidus 
and Kabbalah for that reason, for, for that matter, right? And now, imagine on the other side of the map, San Francisco in the 1960s, with a, with a completely assimilated group of people who only knew one thing, though, whose hearts were completely opened and just wanted to know the truth with all of their heart. Forget about what they look like on the outside or whatever it is they were doing. That, that is completely secondary. Their hearts were open and they, they, they had a desperate yearning for the truth. And along comes one person <laughs> who is able to link pre-World War II Polish and, and every, all of Torah, right? All of the deepest depths of Hasidus and to communicate it to people who knew absolutely nothing. Now, if he was dressed like a conventional grand rabbi, I don't know that he would be able to have been able to get a, any audience with him. I, I, I don't think so. In fact, he himself said, he was asked, why did you call your center, right, your gathering place, the house of love and prayer? And he said, if I called it Temple Beth Israel, no one would have come. <laughs> Right? But it's it's funny, but it's real. So so this idea again of the yud becoming a hey, of this seemingly lowering in spirituality. Right? Now, by the way, I, I, I just want to make sure that I'm communicating and tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about not keeping halacha. That's not what I'm saying, just so you understand very clearly. I'm not saying, oh, these guys are eating cheeseburgers, so let me eat cheeseburgers with them, and then we'll be able to talk about very grand things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about not keeping halacha. But nonetheless, there's, a, there's a, an ability to relate to another person, Torah bi'ito, Torah in its time, to say the thing to the person that they need to hear. Which means, by the way, leaving a lot of times your own sort of Ganadin that you're constructing in your mind, right? And actually looking at the other person and seeing where they're at. Because again, you know, the Yet Sahara is everywhere. The negative inclination is everywhere. And a lot of times, expressions of spirituality can be manifestations of acts of narcissism. And a person has to be really careful that they're not appearing to be spiritual as a way of glorifying themselves. It's, it's, these are very subtle levels, but these are critical levels if someone wants to serve God with truth. So Torah Bi'ito mandates that a person get out of their own head and to relate to where the other person is at, which is what we're supposed to be doing all the time anyway. Okay. So I'll just give you one last thing, one of my favorite <coughs> teachings on this, and then we're going to get to the second part of this, which is the idea that when a person jumps, I forgot who said this. I, think, I, I don't know, it was either 
Rabbi Nachman of Breslov or the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that if you stand up and you try to enact this, you'll, you'll, you'll see, it's, it's quite amazing just how this works. If you want to jump higher, first you have to bend your knees and go lower. <laughs> so you go lower and then you jump higher. So the descent is for the purpose of the ascent, right? And so that's, that's, that's the idea. The idea is that you go down lower and then the spirituality doesn't disappear. It actually overflows. And now I want to relate this to Archimedes. So Archimedes was a uh, very famous um, Greek mathematician. And he is famous for saying Eureka, right? That's, that's Archimedes. So what was, the, what was the Eureka moment? So it's a cool story. So the, some, the, the king um, uh, had a crown made for him, a gold crown, and he suspected the crown maker of fraud because he felt that there was silver in the gold crown and silver was cheaper than gold. So he wanted to try to catch the thief, but he didn't know how to prove that in this gold crown there was silver. So he offered basically a prize to anyone who could figure out how to determine the fact that there was silver in this gold crown, which wasn't visible to the eye. So Archimedes goes to the bathhouse, and as he's sinking in his tub, he notices the lower down he goes, he's displacing water. Water is going out of the tub, right? And he realizes that the amount of water that's leaving the tub is equal in volume to his body. And all of a sudden he realizes how he's going to solve the king's problem. <laughs> that if he takes a pure gold crown, he'll see how much water that displaces. But if he takes a heavier crown that has some silver mixed in, it will displace more water, and then he'll be able to determine whether or not this was, you know, uh, a crown that, that had silver in it, in which case they'd be able to catch the thief. So when he saw the displacement of water, his mind linked it to the problem of the king, and he yelled, Eureka! And he was so excited, he ran home naked. <laughs> he was just, you know, in the moment, right? So... So that's Archimedes. Um, by the way, here's a, 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 while I was just sort of going over that, I saw like a fun fact about Archimedes, that he created a death ray, right? So what was, what was that? He, he figured out that if there were these incoming Roman ships, which I guess were like enemy ships, and he created these mirrors. I don't know if this actually happened or if he just designed it or what the story is, but but he then realized that he could then take the rays of the sun, bounce them off the mirrors, and focus them on the sails of the ship, and make the ship catch on fire. So that, that was also Archimedes. So anyway, so, but what's the, what's the point? The point is the idea that as you go down lower, you displace the energy. In other words, as he goes down lower in the bath, the water spills out and overflows. So again, let's relate this back to the, to the Medrash. As the Yud turns into a hay, it's not that the, the levels of spirituality just disappear. As it's coming down, it's displacing water, and that spirituality is actually overflowing into this realm. That's the point. 
As a person lowers themselves to relate to someone who's on a maybe lower, not that they're worse than them in any way, but maybe not quite as enlightened as they are, as they lower themselves, what's happening is there's a overflow of their own spirituality that then flows to the next person. So you're actually able to share and to spread those levels of spirituality. They don't just disappear. Is that clear? Is it clear? Okay. So now, let's go to part B of the Medrash. So, Yehoshua, who's not named Yehoshua at this point, he's still Hoshaya, right? So he's going on this super dangerous mission. He's going to be one of the 12 spies that are going to report back about the land of Israel. And of course, we know how that story ends. 10 of the 12 spies come back with a very negative report, and that leads to 40 years of wandering in the desert and a whole generation dying out. In other words, it wasn't just that the Jews got lost in the desert for 40 years. You know, that was a decree that they had to wander for 40 years, you know, until that generation died out. And then they were able to go into the desert. Okay. So, so Moshe knows that this is a very dangerous mission. And he wants to bless uh, his student that he should be above the fray, that he should be not influenced by the other spies. And so he attaches the letter Yud, this exalted level of spirituality, to Hoshaya. Now look how brilliant the Medrash is. Look how beautifully this works out. Hoshaya's name begins with the letter Hey. That's the bottom rank, right? And now you see the exact reversal of the Yud of Sarai becoming the Hey of Sarah. The Yud then goes to the Hey of Hoshaya and lifts him up to the level of the Yud. Do you see how it's, it's exactly symmetrical? So, so he then gets lifted up. Now, this, I think, there's another message now being communicated here by the Medrash, which is, in the divine ecosystem, nothing gets lost, because the time that Sarah, Sarai becomes Sarah is generations before Hoshai becomes Yehoshua, meaning to say that that spirituality that comes down, it spreads and there's a domino effect. And even if it's generations later, where you see that it takes hold and manifests itself, nonetheless, nothing is lost. There's no such thing as divine energy or service of God or sincere prayer or any act where you exude from your soul into the world. There's no transmission of energy that doesn't find its place and doesn't land eventually. Even if it's not when a person wants it to land necessarily. Nothing is lost. Okay, that's part one. Now I want to tell you another thought. So... This is a, a Pusik from, from uh, Parsis Akev, which we just uh, read. And um, I read it, and then I started to go into it more deeply. 
if you if you want to if you want to see it inside, it's um it's in Devarim, uh, Deuteronomy, right? Chapter eight, and it's um it's uh sorry, uh, verse three, chapter eight, verse three, in Devar. So so it's talking about manna. That's how we say it in English. In Hebrew, we say man. And that's the bread that fed us uh, during our time in the desert. And of course, very significantly, it began to fall on, there are different opinions, but one of them is on the 15th of Iyar. And of course, we get the Torah on the 6th of Sivan. So, so a few weeks before we receive the Torah, we, we, we start eating man. And that's, that's very significant, as we'll soon see. Um, but anyway, let me read to you the Pasuk. And then I saw like kind of like really very deep levels within this Pasuk that, that aren't immediately apparent, which is why I wanted to share it with you. So it says like this. It's talking about Hashem. It said, He made life difficult for you, letting you go hungry. And then He fed you the manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever experienced. This was to teach you that it is not by bread alone that man lives, but by all that comes out of God's mouth. Right? That's one of the most famous phrases from the whole Torah. Not by bread alone does man live, right? But by the word of God. A lot of Torah on this. But I wanted to get into the beginning part of this. This is um, from the Living Torah from Rabbi Ari Kaplan. It's kind of more of a um, free translation. So, so, What's, what's, what's interesting here to me is that it said, you see, you see, mana, man is, is, is so interesting on so many different levels. Uh, the Gomorrah in Yuma, uh, Rabbi Kiva, uh, as explained by the Ramban on page 75a, I think it is, says that what mana was was condensed light. Right? So, so you have this heavenly light, and then as it becomes condensed, it became mana. Right? So that's, that's like pretty way out, basically. You know? And it said that mana was completely absorbed in our bodies, 100%. There was no waste product from mana, because it was just, basically, we were ingesting light, basically. You know? So it was pretty, pretty phenomenal. Now, now, uh, it says that the generation that received the Torah at Mount Sinai, basically, how were we able to get the Torah at Mount Sinai? Because we were a generation that ate man. Okay, so now we have a very interesting connection between ingesting man, right, and our ability to receive the Torah. All right, so let's go a little bit further and get into the Pasuk now. So it says, by the way, it says that when we got man, that it was um, that it was a test from God. You know, we have an expression in English that when something good happens, we say, oh, and especially unexpectedly, we say, it was like mana from heaven, right? But if you actually look at the very first time mana appears in the Torah, God says, I'm going to test you with the man. <laughs> very different energy, very different idea. It was because the idea was that man just lasted one day at a time, except for Shabbos, 
right? When we'd get a double portion on Friday, and then we'd have for Shabbos, we wouldn't have to work for it, right? But nonetheless, it was to, it, it was a little bit disconcerting. Can you imagine if you only have money in your, in your bank account or in your pocket to last you for that day, and you don't know what's going to happen the next day? That was the whole mana experience in the desert. It was to inculcate in the spiritual DNA of the Jewish people that we can trust Hashem. And we had that experience for 40 years. So it's amazing how much amuna, how much belief Jewish people have. And part of it was from this mana experience, knowing that day to day, everything can be new and every day, something, your, one circumstances can change and that God is taking care of us, not just on a moment by moment level, but certainly on a day by day level. It's one of the things that mana tested us with. And by the way, anyone who kept the mana, like tried to be smart about it and said, well, you know, I'll just eat half and I'll hold the other half for tomorrow just in case God doesn't bring the mana, it turned into worms, right? So, so there was really, there was positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Um, so, so here it says that uh, God made life difficult for you, all right? So regarding the man. Letting you go hungry, right? Because, you know, one of the reasons why we light Shabbos candles, there's all sorts of reasons why we light Shabbos candles. One of them, though, is that so you can, before electricity, right, which was most of the history of humanity, was that you should be able to see your food, right? And also not trip over each other and get into fights. It was also to promote Shalom bias, you know? But they say that, that the ability to see your food is a lot of the pleasure of eating the food. In other words, you know, like if you watch any of these cooking shows, you know, like one of my favorite sort of fancy words is plating, right? Plating is the, the ability to uh, aesthetically present food on the plate, right? You know how they put like those raspberry drizzles like around your slice of chocolate cake and things like that? That's all plating, you know? So, so presentation really counts for quite a bit, you know? So the ability to see your food is a lot of the enjoyment of your food, okay? So, so, um, so if you can't see your next day's food, or if you don't know where your next day's food is coming from, if you can't see it with your own eyes, then you, you'll be hungry even if your belly is full. You see, because there's, a, there's actually a tangible enjoyment from looking. Okay. Now, here's really where I want to get to. And then he fed you with the mana. And it says that lo yadata, that you didn't know. All right, now we're getting deep. Now listen to this. You see, mana wasn't just something simple. Where do we go wrong? by eating from the tree of knowledge, the Eitz Hadas, right? It's the word Das, this level of knowledge. Remember, you see, I heard in the name of the Rambam that before we ate from the tree of knowledge, there were two reference points, true and false, okay? After we ate from the tree of knowledge, which is the knowledge of good and bad, right? Tovara. Tovara is relative. 
You see, what's good for you might not be good for me. What's bad for me might not be bad for you. All of a sudden, you get into this relativistic place of morality. Who's to say what's ultimately right? And who's to say what's ultimately bad or good or bad, right? You hear? But before that, we had true and false. True and false is not relative. You see, so what happened was, once we ate from the tree of knowledge, all of a sudden, like, truth became, like, hidden. And it was just like me against you. There was no higher clarity. So remember, what did we say in the beginning? We said that the, the rabbis teach that the Torah was only given to people who ate man. Okay? So, so but it's, it's more than that, though. You see, we have, we have a very deep teaching, which is that, that after we ate from the tree of knowledge, that basically we got this spiritual poison, this, this snake bite, right? Which kind of, you know, how, how literal you take this is sort of beside the point. The point is to understand the, 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 the teaching that's being communicated here. We saw the world in a different way. We saw the world so that all of a sudden the, 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 the prison of the natural order, if you will, became a trap for us. We became imprisoned within the notion that there's this world and who knows what exists beyond this world. This is the whole idea that they realized that they were naked and they had to cover up their exterior because their exterior became their primary focus. It was all about exteriors after we eat from the tree of knowledge. And that's why nature all of a sudden becomes this sort of barrier or this screen from seeing the higher truth. And this is all tied to eating from the tree of knowledge, right? Knowledge as opposed to true and false, tree of knowledge of good and bad being this relativistic thing, which is what's good for you might be not be good for me, and what's bad for you might not be bad for me. Everything was confused at this point. All of these levels are tied to the word knowledge, okay? What happens when we eat the man is that all of a sudden we get lifted up beyond this world because we're being fed with divine light. Because what does the Gemara say in Yuma? That mana was condensed light. All of a sudden we get lifted up beyond this world. And now we're able to receive the Torah. Now listen to this. Our rabbis teach that this snake poison, if you will, right, this, um, this, uh, thing that was implanted in us just to see exteriors. When were we freed from it? When we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. Because what do we say? Torah emet. Now we're back to the idea of truth and falsehood, which is the higher level of clarity, which frees us from this relativistic thing. Will you say this? Will I say that? Will you say this? Will I say that? And it seesaws back and forth pointlessly. Is there a truth? And how can we touch that truth? How can that truth communicate with us so that we know what to do? 
what the blueprint is. That's the Torah. But in order to be able to get to that place, we have to be freed from this level of knowledge as we understand it, knowledge within the context of the tree of knowledge, which is this relativistic thing, which is a lower level of total clarity, which is truth and falsehood, of emet, Torah emet. So now listen to this. So God says, I fed you, listen, this is awesome. I fed you man asher lo yadata, that you didn't know, meaning man is lo yadata, not from the tree of knowledge. It's not from the tree of knowledge. This is a higher eating, this is a higher infusion. This is beyond what you did back then. And your, and, your, and your fathers didn't know it, meaning all the way back to Adam and Chava. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if this Pasuk then went on to discuss Adam and Chava and the curse of having to work for your own bread? It does. <laughs> that blew me away, you know, because I was like on it from Loyadata. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is like how Man is correcting the whole tree of knowledge and 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 receive and blah, blah, blah. and then as I read on in the in the pasuk, it was like every single word was like furthering this idea. So it says, so in order, so so you're fed this mana, in order to be caused to know that it's not through lechem, through bread alone. Listen to this. Yichyeh Adam. What happens when Adam eats from the tree of knowledge? Death comes into the world. Right? And so what does it say here? I'm giving you man, meaning to say, I'm going to free you to get back to the level of truth, back to the level of before eating from the tree of knowledge. And what does it say in the Gomorrah and Shabbos, right? It says that when we receive the Torah... At Mount Sinai, we were like Adam and Chava before they ate from the tree of knowledge. So it says here, so that you should be caused to know that it's not only because of bread alone, Yichyeh Adam, that Adam lives. It could use a different name for a human being here. It says Adam, as in Adam and Chava. So that you'll be able to live. That Adam should be able to live. Because after he eats from the tree of knowledge, Adam dies. And then it goes on. Ki mitzvah pi Hashem ha'adam. Because it's through the word of God that Adam lives. Meaning to say that when Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, he went against the word of God. So we're being told that if you follow the word of God, then we live. We live forever. So, in other words, and by the way, it's just interesting that it says, Kilo al Why? It's not just from bread alone. Okay, so let me take you to Breshis. And this is, um, this is uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. This is the curse of Adam, the famous curse of Adam. 
By the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread, lechem. In other words, the direct consequence of eating from the tree of knowledge was now we were going to have to work like crazy to eat bread. And now what does this verse say? Not by bread alone. Right? We're going to get past the curse. And how do you get past the curse? To understand that Torah is not just a subject that you learn in your head. Torah is something that nourishes you and feeds you. It feeds your soul. It nourishes your soul. You know, on this, the Ari also says that it's by the it's not just bread alone that 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 sustains you, the word of God. So the Ari, I heard explains it in the following way: that when God spoke the world or sang the world into creation, that that his voice, so to speak, went into every single thing in existence. And when you eat bread, there's the exterior of the bread, which feeds your body, and there's the inner spark, the word of Hashem, which animates the food, which feeds your soul. So it's not by bread alone that you live. It's by that the word of Hashem, which is in the bread, those divine sparks which are in the bread, which feed your soul. And when you say a bracha before you eat, you're able to better access that spark of God within the food. And then it nourishes you even more. Because you understand, like, all the divine mechanics line up and you get the most out of it, right? So, so now, with this in mind, let's just do one more, one more PS on this teaching. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I went up to Har Sinai and I didn't eat bread, again bread, for 40 days and didn't drink water for 40 days. Now this is like superhuman. How do you do it? How do you not eat bread or drink water for 40 days? So I'll just tell you how I understand it. What we have in this world, we have a model in nature of this thing. Photosynthesis. What is photosynthesis? It's that plants absorb light. So Moshe Rabbeinu is on such an exalted, unique level that at that point, he's within the man. Remember, what is man? Man is condensed light. So he's up completely immersed in the divine light. And it's like Lahabdil photosynthesis. He's completely absorbing this energy on the highest, purest, most divine level. So my son, I was explaining this to my son, you know, and he said to me, so does that mean um, that if you get really holy, you don't have to eat? And I said to him, well, you know, that was Moshe's level, but I would tell you that the holier you get, probably the less you have to eat. You know? And, and so... So here you see, just to wrap it up and we'll finish up, just to wrap it up, here you see the idea that man was given to us as a fixing from the, from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And that man was given to us to raise us up, and now we can really understand the Medrash, hopefully, that, that the Torah was only given to the generation that ate man in the desert. That we were lifted up to this place, purified to this place above bread, which was the curse of Adam, right? 
and so that we should be able to live, to understand that there's more than just this world, right? That the next world is, is a reality. And it's, it's, but this world is great. You see, the Muslims, man, these crazy jihadis, you know, I'm not talking about the average Muslim or the rank-and-file Muslim right now. I'm talking about these jihadis who are so proud to say, we love death, you love life. You know, they have this amuna, this belief, which is on, a, on one level very beautiful. They understand the concrete reality of the next world. But not, not to reject this world. This world is also a creation of God and is also beautiful and is also a place where we can serve each other and give God tremendous happiness. 